Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Interchange was founded inside of Bond, the embedded finance company, as a place for conversation, questioning, and open learning about the future of embedded finance. Our guest today is Arlene Dzernak, Chief Compliance Officer at Bond. Arlene has a storied history from sponsor banking at Celtic Bank, one of the leaders in fintech banking in general, to one of the earliest movers in embedded finance in her last role as Chief Compliance Officer of a firm, the buy now, pay later juggernaut. In this episode, we cover Arlene's unique journey into the world of banking compliance, why program management and compliance are critical to business strategy, and how important data is to the future of fintech and consumer financial health in general. We have some fun and we talk a lot of nerdiness. I hope you enjoy our interchange. Arlene, I've been so excited to have this conversation with you. After getting to know you as we have and spending all of our time together on Zoom, still haven't met in person, but I'm just, I'm mind blown by you as a human and stop for a second with your disagreement and humbleness. Um, but you've had an incredible career. And I say that and it kind of makes you sound old. That's not what I mean. It's like you're in the early innings of your career, but it's amazing what you've accomplished already. Like your last two positions before joining Bond include stints as chief compliance officer at Celtic Bank, where you were partnering with fintech companies of all stripes and... You were most recently at a firm that had a recent IPO. So much to dig into and learn from there. But before we get into a firm and Celtic and like all of the fintech nerdiness that we talk about in the 2020s, let's go back to like how you got into compliance. So first off, tell me about like your educational background and how that kind of non-average situation like led you to this wild world of compliance. Well, well, thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me on. And I think we've joked that one day when we meet in person, we'll realize how much shorter I am compared to you. So <laughs> looking forward to that. Um, so a little bit about my background. Um, you know, I'm definitely not your traditional CCO um, from what you'll, what you'll see out there in the industry. Um, I'm, I'm not a lawyer and nothing on, on the lawyers that are, that are CCOs or in compliance. Uh, but I'm not a lawyer and I don't actually believe that you need to be in order to be a compliance person. Uh, but kind of going a little bit farther back, um, I, I actually started working at the age of 18. So I, I went to college for about a year, decided that I wanted to actually work and get out there in the real world first. And so I was working for quite a bit before I finally got into, okay, I probably should finish my my college degree. Uh, and so, so it, it was a little bit of, you know, it was actually many years of work before I decided to finally get in there, finish my bachelor's and uh, eventually get my MBA all in accounting. I'm also a certified public accountant who's never worked in, in accounting. So that's my background. <laughs> But that you kind of when you were 18 and started to work, you weren't wasn't that in the banking industry? Weren't you a teller or something along the like kind of entry level inside of a bank? You know, when I decided that I, I wanted to stop going to school for a little bit and just take, kind of take that break and start a job. Um, I got a job at Washington Mutual and I was a teller um, and I was for a little while because that after doing that, moving out, you know, having that job 
then I, I decided, okay, I'll start, you know, slowly going back to school. And I was kind of putting myself through school as much as I could pay for one class at a time, starting then. I know that feeling. That's one of the things that you and I bonded on early, early in our conversations was I paid my way through college too, or well, I fell backwards into a scholarship and then I paid my way through college, but yeah, always had like three jobs and had no clue what I was going to do with it. But I was just like, I don't know. Society tells me I'm supposed to go to school. So I'm going to go do that. So I respect the, I respect the, you know, the countercultural kind of direction of it. What, I mean, did that kind of spark some interest in banking? Like I, I haven't met a ton of people that have been tellers and been like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in banking unless they just kind of, they're not very ambitious, but you are ambitious. So it's interesting that you've kind of stayed in this industry for as long as you have. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the part that's funny, right? I mean, I, I kind of remember when, when I was a teller and we would have auditors come into the, to the branch. And that was probably when I decided one day I'll be an auditor, which really sounds nerdy now that I think about it. That is not, yeah, I've, I've never heard anyone else say that sentence, actually. You're the first. Yeah. So, so that, was, that was actually my first, uh, you know, tip into, okay, that's what I might want to do with my career, hence the accounting degree. And right. that's kind of how I got started in it. Um, but, you know, the more, the more I was in banking and the more I kind of just like moved up in my career. So I went from being a teller to working in HR HR operations. I worked there for about seven years and, and worked on project management type work um, and systems implementation. Uh, but around that time is when I, I finally had, you know, some some senior leadership really willing to back me up and say, you know, hey, I'll, I'll help pay for the rest of your bachelor's degree if you stick around long enough. And then when you finish, I'll refer you to someone, you know, in audit. And that's kind of how I got my my co-dipping into the to the compliance and risk world. Um, so from there, I pretty much just went from audit doing, you know, compliance audits and like financial audits and control audits, and then eventually moving into compliance. Who was it that saw the potential in you in those early days? Was like, were you just building relationships with people inside the bank? And they were like, ah, you kind of know what you're talking about. We should help you know about the rest of what you're talking about. Like that's a, that's non-average for someone to kind of stick their neck out there like that and kind of invest in someone that doesn't already have that degree or doesn't already have kind of that proven track record in the, the classical sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, even when I was in HR, I, I was already I was promoted pretty quickly into management. Um, and so I think it was it was then. Right. So, OK, she's in management. She has potential. She has aspirations. Weird. She wants to go into audit, but happy to support it if that's, <laughs> if that's what she wants. Um, and and that that was pretty much it. It was it was the leadership that I had there at the time. Very supportive. Um, and, and, you know, helpful in, in being kind of my first stepping stone of folks that were mentors to me in that management team. Yeah. I mean, I'm starting to hear like stripes of who you are now as a person, which we'll get to later on, but the way that you think about recruiting, the way that you think about identifying talent sounds like it, it almost kind of goes back to your time at that bank and your time at of someone else noticing that you had potential and then you kind of like paying that forward almost through the rest of your life. For sure. I mean, that's actually one of the biggest things that I hold near and dear to my heart is, is mentoring other folks. Um, I can safely count 
on probably hmm, one, one and a half hands, um, the number of folks that were instrumental in my career over, over the last, you know, I won't say how long, but over my career, there, been a I lot called you young earlier. We're fine. I call it member when I called you young in the intro. So we're, we're good. You don't need to say the number of years. All they need I to don't know need is to say that I'm really old. So. <laughs> hey, you say things. I don't say things, you know, I call you young. <laughs> That's how I start these things out. So we'll, we'll come back to the mentoring piece kind of later down the line. So let's put a pin in that, but audit, which to me is one of the most boring and scary words in the history of the United States. How do you, or the history of the world, how do you get from that over to compliance, which maybe is like two boring words in people's heads on average, but I do think of compliance as a lot more interesting than audit. So how'd you, how'd you make that jump and what was that process like? Well, and I could even tell you that I was probably one of the most friendliest, uh, auditors known to man, because when you get into audit and, and doing any kind of audit risk controls compliance, you're not necessarily the most favorite person in the room, when yeah. you, especially when you walk in and they're like, oh my gosh, here she is again. Um, and so my way of dealing with it is to be, you know, the funnest and most friendliest person that you could deal with. And so that that's how I was as an auditor. And, and you know, the, the way that, that it relates is really you know, audit can cover a lot of things. And so in my mind, back in the teller days, it was fun to think of someone coming in to audit a branch. Then when I finally got into audit, it was a lot of it was like financial reporting and mm -hmm. financial compliance audits. Um, but there was also because it was a bank. So there was a lot of, you know, BSA, AML, you know, lending compliance audits. Um, and so usually when you, when you're in audit, you kind of cover the gamut, you always end up covering a lot of different areas in a company. Um, and then you kind of, you know, have, have kind of a bird's eye view of where the departments are that have, <laughs> have issues or are fun to work in. And so you kind of get your pick. And so you probably don't know this about me, Zach, but like I've, I've worked in three audit shops, three different companies. Um, I did and every not. time I do it, it, the purpose is you get into a company first in audit, you learn, you know, where you want to move to, and then you eventually move to it. Um, so that, that's how I got into compliance is, is I, I started out in audit at, uh, at GE. And then I, um, I will fondly tell this story because it's an old friend that this happened to. I, um, I audited the bank and, uh, I issued the audit report. There were findings. The CCO immediately called me after I issued the report that she was fully aware of what the findings would end up being. Uh, but after, after I issued the audit report, she immediately called me up and said, um, so do you want to help me fix these things? <laughs> um, and so I, you know, she was also a former auditor. And so she, she understood that, you know, they weren't, they were legitimate findings and they really needed to be fixed. Uh, so she called me up and asked me if I if I wanted to uh, to work for her to help fix them. That's how I got into compliance. That's wild. That's a I, that's actually like a really interesting kind of basic mental model because I, I I talk to a lot of folks in compliance. I talk to a lot of folks that have audit background, and it's like this umbrella that means seventy five thousand different things depending on where you're actually doing it and in what industry and all these other things. But it's interesting to just think about like. All right. Audit points out the problems. Compliance fixes them. 
or at least hopefully fixes them. <laughs> and that's, that's interesting. I, that, that makes sense. So were, was there a lot of overlap in terms of just the knowledge that you had to have, like what you, the knowledge base that you build on the audit side, were you learning about BSA? Were you learning about AML because you had to understand it to point out the issues or was it really more spreadsheets and you had to go kind of learn the, the legalese of all of it afterwards? It's, it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, so this is what happens in a typical audit. So this is where everyone's going to fall asleep. So (laughs) (laughs) you, when you know, you're going to do an audit, let's say you're going to do a BSA AML audit, which is bank secrecy act and money laundering. Um, Before you even go into it and you start planning it, that's when you, when you do look at the regs and you look at the requirements and you outline what all of those things are and you figure out what it is that you're going to test. Um, And so when you're doing that for an audit and for a whole bunch of areas, right? Like if I'm doing that for a lending related audit, or if I'm doing it for finance, what are all the different accounts? What are the controls that are in place? What do I need to test? Mm -hmm. You end up learning a lot. And I think that that's actually why you see um, a lot of successful folks in like compliance, risk management, controllership, like big positions usually come out of working in an audit shop because Hmm. you kind of learn a lot about what, what to do and what not to do. And then you go in with that, that basic knowledge. And so sure. Yeah. You mean, you still end up learning as you go. I I didn't know, of course, everything there was to know about compliance and every single regulation you learn that on the way, but I learned a lot of the basics and a lot of what a compliance program would consist of just being in audit. Now that I think about it, like a lot of the compliance people I know do, like if you go back far enough on their LinkedIn, there is Price Waterhouse Coopers or, you know, whatever. Right. There's like something along those lines that was, you know, usually when they tell the story, they're like, yeah, and this was a two to three years of my life. I absolutely hated that I would never want to give back. You know, it was like they, it was, they despised it, but they learned so much and it informed the rest of their career. It's an interesting, it's an interesting funnel. So what, kept you in banking? Was it just like this upward mobility thing? Were you fascinated by financial services? Like what, what made it so you wanted to spend the rest of your life doing this wildness? Well, let's just first and foremost say that I don't think any kid, you know, says, I want to be a banker for the rest of my life, or I even want to be a compliance person for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think that's exactly what happened, right? Like it was an upward trajectory. I mean, I went from teller to working in HR and moving into management there and then moving into audit. Um, and then just every, every incremental step in my career just kept me in banking. And, and again, going back to those folks that were really awesome mentors for me to help support me and, and, you know, give me the opportunities, even if I didn't necessarily have the prior experience to take that chance on me. Uh, I think that that was definitely, that was definitely what did it for me. I mean, as I progressed, you know, a lot of it is also in, in the types of mentors I've had. A lot of them were really strong female leaders um, who took a chance on me. And so, you know, that that kind of goes back to my philosophy of the way I hire today too. I mean, yeah, when somebody takes a chance on you, if you, you know, if somebody takes a chance on you in this industry, that industry, whatever it is, even if it's maybe like the most boring thing in the world, you have a sense of 
loyalty and responsibility that you want to see it through, right? Like no matter what it is. So I can understand how you would kind of end up. I mean, honestly, when I got to NBKC previous to Bond, I I didn't think I wanted to work in banking, you know, but I just kind of found myself working with these pretty unbelievable humans that I did not expect to be working with. And I was like, oh, you mean there's good people in banking? That's <laughs> wild. You know, I mean, it's like, that's not the average perception. You know, you read the, you read the New York times, you read the, well, maybe not wall street journal. Maybe they give a little better sense of things, but you know, I feel like if you ask the average American, what do you think of Jamie diamond? Like, eh, maybe, <laughs> maybe not great, you know, NPS score there, but there are so many great people in banking and I don't know Jamie diamond. Maybe he's a great guy. I've heard good things, mostly from billionaires, but I've heard good things <laughs> anyways. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I get that. What was the jump? Cause it sounds like you're like walking up these steps, right? Like you start as teller, you move to this, you move to that. And you're like kind of getting to the second floor almost in life. Was that a big jump into being a chief compliance officer from kind of what, it, like, what was the role before that? Was there a, were you like jumping three steps there? Or was that a pretty obvious next step? I, it's funny because I actually, <clears throat> when I worked for the, the CCO at one point, um, you know, who is a dear friend, by the way, still to this day, she told me at one point, like, well, one day you'll, you'll want my job. And I'm like, heck no, I don't, I don't want your job. And I'm sure she thinks it's hilarious now because she knows that I am a CCO today, yeah. you know, and I have been in multiple different places now. Uh, I would say, you know, it just kind of was a natural progression. It, it probably seems like kind of like a jump out of nowhere, but it was kind of a natural progression. I mean, you know, working in compliance and, and I was kind of, you know, director level working on the program, uh, leading folks. And then eventually I moved into a role at another bank where I was head of compliance internal audit. Um, and, and it just kind of was this natural progression that when I was recruited at Celtic to be, you know, the, the CCO that, and I was recommended by someone um, when they recruited me. So it, it just, was natural just seemed it was a it was like the right fit yeah and i mean if somebody's offering you know somebody tosses down a rope from the next floor like you climb up it right that makes <laughs> sense i get it one of the questions that i get a lot in my previous life of running an accelerator that i still get today advising early stage startups what is the actual responsibility of a chief compliance officer and at what point do you need to care as a founder right like and yeah. I'll ask the follow-up afterwards, but I'm also curious how much founders should be thinking about this stuff themselves. But let's start with what is the chief compliance officer and at what point do you start to pay attention to that position? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, right? I, I think that I think that if you're a banker, you understand what a chief compliance officer is in this world of fintech. It's a little bit nuanced, right? Because it depends on what it is your company does, which goes back to, again, not necessarily to offend the, the attorney CCO counterparts that I have in the world, but you don't necessarily need a law degree to be a CCO. I, I value my counterparts in the legal group that help me to interpret the law and understand what certain requirements are. But as a CCO, I mean, you're responsible for making sure that the company complies with laws and regs and that the employees in it understand what the requirements are, understand what the policies are and, and what thing, what processes and controls they should be following. 
I mean, that that's it in a nutshell, which sounds super basic, but it is a lot more complicated. I mean, I would say that, you know, my role here at Bond is to make sure that we are doing business with folks that are compliant and that we offer those compliant solutions. So we make it easier for our customers to be able to be compliant. It shouldn't be as hard as it is in the traditional banking space. Um, we should be able to automate a good chunk of the work that we do and be able to just oversee certain things from a risk-based standpoint and not really, you know, manually touch every single thing to avoid, you know, not, not meeting certain requirements. Um, I, but I guess that maybe going into your, to your next question, as far as like, when, when should founders be thinking of it or when should companies be thinking of it? I, you know, I'll use Bond as, a, as an awesome example of it. It's the right time to think about it from the very beginning, right? I, I mean, as, as a banking as a service provider, as a company that enables embedded finance, um, which means that we're offering, we're, we're helping our customers who may not be fintechs or banks to offer financial products to their customers. By far, that's the most important thing is making sure that we are being compliant and that we are protecting those customers and, and that we're, we're not taking advantage of them. Um, and so, you know, for Bond to offer that product, it's the right thing to do to do it from the very beginning because we do offer compliant solutions. And so that makes sense to do it there. Um, I mean, as you scale, I mean, it kind of depends on the, the actual fintech or the, the brand itself, right? It may be in the beginning a little bit too early to put in a ton of uh, resources on the compliance front. And so that's where, you know, again, thinking of Bond, that's how we help solve that problem in the beginning. We, we offer the, the solutions and the compliance advisory and the program management to those who may not be sure if it's a viable product just yet, or may not be at scale to be able to afford the, the resources. Um, but my two cents is that if you're going to offer financial products and you're doing it at scale, you should have a CCO that, that's making sure that you're staying on the path and, and establishes the guardrails for you so that your customers are protected. You're in a really interesting position with a large amount of leverage when I listen to you explain it that way, right? Like the, the ability for you to build a compliance program inside of bond that is then able to benefit all of bonds partners on the brand side, right? Anybody that's trying to go after an embedded finance product, trying to do, you know, maybe something even as a neobank, something like more classically chimey is going to be the adjective that I just created. Um, you have this, this very, very significant lever, it feels like, where if you do the right thing and construct things correctly inside a bond, that like the rest of the industry almost benefits by that, like it's the, the low marginal cost of compliance or something like that. Like you do it right once, and then from there it can be copied and pasted over and over and over again. And it not only benefits the company, but to your other point, it benefits the end user, which I think it's interesting to me that this is such a, rarely discussed topic of how compliance actually interacts with the end user and how important it is that policies and regulations have the end user in mind. 
Right. I mean, I would say this is the one thing, and I, I say this in, in all my job interviews, and I say it to people all the time, and I mean it, is that I, I didn't become a CCO. I didn't work in compliance because I love laws and regs. Let's, I, let's be clear about that. Um, you know, the reason that I'm in compliance is the true spirit of why compliance and laws and regs exist, right? It's for consumer protection so that we're not taking advantage of people and we're treating them fairly so that we're offering and extending, um, you know, products and services to those that are underbanked or unbanked. That's the reason I, I got into compliance. And so that's always what I, what I direct it back to. And so when I talk about things that we have to do from a compliance program standpoint, if it means, you know, monitoring and testing, making sure that there isn't fraudulent transactions coming around. They're making sure that, that customers' uh, personal information is protected. If you think about it, the spirit of all of that is not because I want to check the box for a law or a reg. It's to protect the consumer and to protect customers. And that's, that's the point of what compliance is to me. It's not about what necessarily their law or the reg says. This is why I loved you from the first minute we talked is you're just <laughs> different and you actually care about people, but it, it's, it's interesting, right? Because of this, have you seen the social dilemma? I don't think so. No, no. So it's basically, it's a documentary uh, that was done by some, I think it was like X Facebook, X Twitter, X social media uh, kind of upstarts. And basically they're like 2020, you know, rear view kind of Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking a lot of how, how you know liking one thing based to oversimplify liking one thing leads to the algorithm providing you with more things like that that you like and then you just kind of go down this rabbit hole of of that right so like that's the social media version of it i think the and it seems like we're almost starting to have this i don't know if it's a reckoning i don't know what the right term is but it seems like we're having our social dilemma moment almost or at least the beginning of it inside of financial services right now with hearings happening about, you know, halting of trading on certain platforms and things like that, that it does, I think it, to your earlier point, it does behoove founders to have that thought in mind at an earlier stage, right? Like these, these super early stage startups are assumed dead for the most part, but if you do succeed, uh oh, right? Like what, what happens when, when, and if you do hit that hundred million dollar revenue mark or yada, 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 have you done the right things to set up the systems that, so that they actually benefit the consumer and aren't detrimental to the consumer at the end of the day? So what are, what advice would you give to an early stage founder? Maybe that can't afford, right? Like can't afford a, a full-time Arlene at this point. I can't, <laughs> if I was going to start a company, I wouldn't be able to afford a full-time Arlene yet probably. So should they be, should they be thinking about advisors potentially to bring on at an early stage, like adding someone like yourself to an advisory board that they can then get, you know, two hours a month with, and at least make sure that they're thinking about these things correctly. Should they, I mean, obviously they should be educating themselves. What, what else, what else can they do to start to develop that muscle before maybe they have the capital to actually hire a full-time you? Yeah. I mean, I think you hit it spot on Zach. I mean, I think that, that the right thing to do, especially in early stage is to, to surround yourself with, with the right advisors. Right. Um, And, and there's plenty of us out there from like former banking 
um, and even still in banking that advise on fintech boards and, and things of that nature. I, I do think that that's the best route. Um, you know, you get board advisors that have some level of compliance um, expertise. Um, you know, you could still end up with with an advisor that that's more you know on the legal realm, but they're still obviously they're they're channeling the laws and regs that are that consumer compliance, consumer protection uh, lens. Um, and you know, if if that doesn't even work out, there there are firms out there that offer that as an advisory function anyway. So even if it's not a board advisor, even if it's a consulting firm. Uh, there's plenty of firms out there that offer that advice. I mean, if what I would say, and this will be my shameless plug for Bond, is that, you know, if if someone wants to start offering embedded products in their brand, talk to Bond. Um, because not only do we offer the technology platform for them, um, then they'll benefit for the expertise of, of my team. So my compliance team uh, provides that kind of compliance advisory service for the brands that we take on. Um, and we help ramp and get you up to speed. We'll help you develop, you know, the policies, procedures, controls, um, establish all of that type of stuff that is a little bit harder and you may not be able to afford someone or maybe you don't want to necessarily, um, you know, allocate any money on that until you know that it's more of a viable product. And so that's how Bond helps is we, we can step in, provide that type of service. And when you get to a point where you think, okay, this is a viable product, we do want to like start thinking about how we're going to scale, then we can enable you with the tools to be able to manage it more effectively instead of manually doing everything via spreadsheets and, you know, Word docs. Yeah, I mean, finding the right, like at a high level, just finding the right partners at an early stage, right? And the ability to, the ability to find one aggregated partner, right? Like you don't have to go rebuild the wheel with this processor and that bank, and it's all in one place. But also the the human capital component of just getting to benefit from, you know, the fact that Bond can't afford to hire a you. You know, there are there are just facts of life that uh, put companies like Bond in a situation where we can be helpful to these early stage founders in a way that, you know, just some other companies can't. So I'm glad you said what you said. And it leads me to the next kind of, from my perception, under discussed pieces of the compliance world, which is, you know, not exactly the sexiest conversation in the world, but I think it's very important. program management, right? So this is something that when I got to NBKC, I was like, everybody keeps saying this word. I don't know what it means. And then, you know, peeling back layers of the onion, I'm like, oh, so this is maybe like one of the most important things that needs to be discussed in a card program, maybe day one. And I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. So let's start with, can you define program management for me? Just like, at least at like a high level and kind of maybe an example of kind of how that manifests itself in the market. Like I, Chime being a program manager, just to use them as an example, it maybe wouldn't make a lot of sense for them not to be at the stage that they're at and everything like that. But in the you know day one, maybe it makes more sense for them to outsource a piece of that. I, I would say the best way to, to describe it is with the traditional bank sponsor model, bank sponsor fintech model. Um, what banks expect are they're regulated by their their bank regulators, right? And so ultimately the responsibility is on the bank when when they're originating or sponsoring products, financial products for and with a fintech uh, partner. 
the, the compliance obligations and everything is really on the bank, ultimately. Um, one way that banks deal with this and the way that regulators pretty much expect them to deal with it is to oversee what's happening at the fintech and to self-impose on the fintech the same obligations that the bank has with, with its regulators. And so that means making sure that um, that all the, the rules, regulations, policies, controls are being complied with, that they're appropriately managing risk, that they understand what their risk level is, uh, that they understand what's going on operationally, all the money movement, that everything's mm-hmm. being reconciled and settled. So it consists of a lot of things beyond compliance. But what typically happens in, in that kind of bank sponsor model scenario is it's primarily focused on compliance. Um, and again, at the end of the day, it's because it's focused on consumer protection and making sure that the customers are not being taken advantage of or not being un- treated unfairly. The other piece of it that I think that's interesting is like what you're hitting on is banks innately cannot outsource risk, right? Yes. That's it's just, They can't do it legally. And I think sometimes founders, especially at an early stage or, you know, either at a very early stage or such a late stage that they're convinced that like, whatever, you work for me kind of thing, that they can, right? That because they've figured out some, I don't know, random idea in my head is like DoorDash, right? And the ability to use the number of DoorDash deliveries that you, that you do in a week to be able to underwrite something, right? Like, yeah, you as a, you as a business, maybe you can benefit from that. You have additional data, but like the bank doesn't care, right? Like the risk is at the end of the day, still the same. Maybe you have some model that you're claiming to be unbelievable, but the program management is still like the, the success and health of the program is still your responsibility, but you got to understand that the bank is the one taking on the risk from even when you have that responsibility, right? Like it's such a nuanced thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's what you hit on Zach. I mean, and banks hear it all the time. I mean, in my, in my many years in banking, I've met several, you know, regulators that say exactly that you can outsource that capability, the function, the service, but you can't outsource the risk. And so that's ultimately what program management is about. It's what is your risk management framework to be able to manage that risk? And and you can't be involved in the day-to-day. It's just not possible, right? When you're in that bank sponsor model position, you're not embedded in the business. You're not embedded in the fintech. So you have to have a certain level of oversight and controls and things that you do, activities that you do to keep a pulse so that you do understand where there could be risk areas. And so from a compliance obligation standpoint, like one of the one of the big elements in a compliance program is monitoring and testing, you know, and so as painful as it might be for for the fintech partner what ends up happening is the program manager on a compliance um, standpoint is doing probably monthly, quarterly, annual testing, um, depending on what the different risks are. Um, obviously, when, when it's lending, there's going to be a lot more risk involved in that because that's where you do want to make sure that you're you know, treating people fairly. There isn't any kind of um, you know, discrimination or taking advantage of people. And so there are things that you could test for that would be indicative of that possibly happening. And so 
as much as that part of it is boring, um, you know, from a compliance standpoint, that's actually how you identify those types of problems as you end up testing and you're overseeing the, the activities. And even if you're just doing a sample test of things that are happening, you just take, you know, the last hundred people who applied for a credit card over the last month and you test that and you test to make sure that they're receiving all the disclosures, they got all the notices they're supposed to, um, even understanding what the underwriting criteria is to make sure that there wasn't any kind of unfair bias in the underwriting. All of that boring stuff actually can unearth where there's potential problems going on. And so that's, that's a good chunk of what happens in program management. And, and then the other aspect is, um, and this is probably the part that most fintechs don't think about, is when you do offer a financial product and, and there are ultimate consumers or customers at the end of that, um, there's, there are regulatory requirements around audits. And so again, that, that obligation is on the bank. The obligation is for the bank to engage an auditor. Um, to, to review what's going on at the fintech, for example, but they're auditing the fintech. They're auditing the processes right. that are happening there as well as what the bank is doing to oversee it. And so that's that's probably one thing that, that people don't even realize that has to happen are these annual audits that it seems like, you know, you're being tested regularly by your program manager. And then every year you've got auditors coming in and, and taking a look at at your activities in your shop and kicking the tires and making sure everything's going well. One of the terms in there that I, I hear bantered around pretty regularly, but to be candid, I don't totally understand is testing is testing kind of a synonym for audit in some way, shape or form. Cause like listening to you talk, it sounds very similar. And I've always just been like, Oh yeah, we, uh, we <laughs> monitor and we test. And I, I honestly don't really know what that means. Is that kind of what it means? It, it, it is. And that's another example of why, you know, audit as a as a background or stepping stone into a compliance career makes sense. So testing is basically so we'll, we'll get into just really quick, but I won't spend too much time on it so that people don't fall asleep. So <laughs> there's there's this model called three lines of defense. Okay. And so there's the first line, which is the business and who's doing everything. Um, to make the business run. Second line of defense is typically your, your compliance and risk function. And so they're kind of independent from the business and they're usually the people that are testing and monitoring. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third line is auditors. So whether that's an independent auditor, external firm or an internal audit, either way they're into completely independent from management. And so compliance and risk tend to do the monitoring and testing of the first line, making sure that they are complying with, with the laws and the policies and everything, uh, making sure that controls are working. So that's like the second line is, is there and you'd rather have your compliance and risk folks find problems and tell you how they could fix it because they're a part of the business. When you have audit come in, they're independent of management and if they're independent, but internal audit, they're still at least within the company. Again, you'd rather have them identify the problems before you have any external auditors come in and find those problems. And then 
ultimately in the banking world, then there's regulators, right? So then the bank regulators come in and they do, they do examinations, which is just, again, another fancy way of saying audit and testing. Um, and so then they come in and that's actually who you last want to have to identify problems in your shop, right? And so those layers of defense are intended to be that way. Your, your compliance and risk folks in your business are there to help you to identify where there could be, there could be gaps or, or um, weak controls or processes in place and to help your business be stronger. Auditors come in and they, they're basically forming an opinion on mm. what control environment is. So they're, they're serving up a formal report and, and giving an opinion on, on the strength of your controls and your environment. Then you've got the regulators that come in and for their own bank reasons will come in and, and do their, their own examinations and, and assess ratings on the bank um, and how they're doing business. Now, when the regulators do look at the bank, they're inadvertently, they somewhat are also looking at the fintech, right, as an extension. So I know banks that have, have auditors or examiners come in um, and may even go directly to the fintech partner and conduct examinations that are targeted to that fintech partner. So there, there's a lot of layers there in, in identifying where there could be problems or concerns or risk areas and, and areas of improvement. It's interesting. It has me thinking about how much of this is a data problem more than it is like a, it's, it's a data visibility problem. It sounds like more than it is like a human capital problem or anything like that. A lot of what you're talking about sounds like it's numbers that did, uh, I don't know, this is a weird way to phrase it, but like numbers that did happen, things that have happened already in the past, right? Like our way of kind of going about doing audits from a regulatory, like if you have the FDIC in there, I know is, you know, mostly sampling and things along those lines right now, where it's not giving you a a full view maybe of everything happening and the view that it is giving you is maybe to, to be ambitious three months old, right? It right. seems like generally older than that, but let's, let's like paint a pretty picture and say three months old. So, and I mean, maybe this is another softball about bond, but how important is it to have that visibility into just what's going on every single day, every single minute, and then kind of building, building your response in real time instead of, lighten your hair on fire once a quarter when somebody tells you something's messed up kind of a thing. Right. And what's funny, Zach, is you're actually talking like an auditor. You're just not using the audit terminology. So, <laughs> so um, the, that's what we refer to as whether it's, there's a preventive or a detective control. Um, and preventative so, or detective. So yeah, like so you would detect it or it's there in order to avoid something falling through a crack kind of thing. Right, exactly. Okay. And so, so when you think of like an, an audit or an examiner, it's more of an after the fact, right? So that's more, de that's more detective. You're identifying problems after the fact. Yeah. You're not preventing them from happening. Sherlock Holmesy um, kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so when, when you think about compliance and risk being the second line of defense, um, that's where you find a lot more real time. And that's generally more where it, there could be some some preventive controls embedded in that I, obviously in the first line of defense which is the business there should also be controls there that also prevent things from happening but you're you're correct in that what compliance does is they there could be 
Um, so not necessarily testing, but it may be monitoring. So if you're looking at transaction monitoring, for example, the best way to have that is real time because then you can stop it. If there was any kind of potential fraudulent activity that you've identified, you could stop it or you could keep an eye on it. And then when you can see that it's starting to get worse, then you can stop it. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I do I do think you're right. I think that the the right thing to do, the right strategy is to do it more monitoring in real time and not after the fact testing. And so the way that that bond obviously is being built is um, to provide that data. So as you said, <clears throat> to provide that dashboard um, reporting of data real time so that so that brands can actually see what's happening in their portfolio. So I think you've I think you've seen both sides of this world in like a really in a really unique way, right? Of being the program manager and also managing other program managers. So being at Celtic, like I'm sure yes. the, a number, you guys had a lot of bank partners. So I'm sure a, most of those were program managers themselves due to the scale that they were at. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Celtic had anywhere from 10 to 12 uh, FinTech partners and, and every single one of those were at the point of scale where, where they were expected to be the program manager. And, and of course it varied, right? I mean, there, there were smaller, smaller shops that, that may only have had one compliance person, or there were the firms of the world that had a, you know, well-developed compliance department. Yeah. That's what I was, that was the other side of the coin I was going to take us to. Yeah. You, your experience there. How big was that team? Um, I would say at a firm, it was probably, I'm going to guess without counting, it was probably about 16 folks. Okay. Um, reporting into me there. Yeah, it was a pretty robust team. I mean, we had we had a BSA officer and folks responsible, like a team responsible for advisory, a team responsible for for program compliance, program management. Um, but sixteen so yeah. isn't sixteen. Sixteen is not a small team, but for a publicly traded company that has that is running compliance on behalf of I don't know. 10,000 e-commerce shops. Like I would think that that's actually, if you look at other financial institutions, maybe that are doing a similar amount of volume on the lending side, that actually sounds like a pretty small team or at least an efficient team. That's about the right size for them <clears throat> because for, for a firm, you know, they're, they're a point of sale lender, right? So it's actually not managing the compliance for the merchants. It's right. really managing it's managing the uh, consumer loans that that customers were taking on, and so that's that's one main product, right? Yeah. That they would do. Um, I know that they were also uh, piloting a deposit savings program um, in partnership with their with one of their partner banks, and so you know they were looking to expand and and do more. And you know, I I, I would be remiss to say, I mean, they they also had. Uh, just as equal, equally large legal department as their counterpart as well, right? So, so it's actually a pretty big team. And I mean, it was it was run by like one of the is is run, I guess, by one of the fintech OGs, right? Like one of the original folks that started this whole thing. Like Max Lefchin is no no joke. And if there was a way to have a one person compliance team inside of a company like that, I have a hunch he would have figured it out. Right. right. I mean, <laughs> PayPal is so big now. I feel like he's probably, I mean, what are they like 
one of the largest employers in the world. Like they have hundreds of thousands of employees. So if he could have learned anything from that experience, I'm sure it's make the compliance team as small and efficient and give them the tools that you can to allow them to just like kind of run the whole thing themselves. And it's still 16 people. Yeah. Sounds like, sounds like there's a reason that we do these things, even if we do have, you know, a technological DNA kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, again, that's, that's the thing that bond is, is solving, yep. right? So if we can automate most of these these program management tools and functionality so that you're not having to manually do everything, um, that's that's a huge win in the industry. And so the tools that we're working on to automate, I can estimate that we can automate 70 to 80% um, to where what's left is actually risk-based of what we're touching instead of manually touching everything and hoping that nothing slips through the cracks. And that, that's just the traditional way of doing program management for compliance. That's not to say anything about anyone who's doing it that way. That's the way it's done. What I am excited about, which is kind of why I joined Fond, is an opportunity to innovate in compliance. You know, and I'm sure that there's there's CCOs out there that are just like, their, their heads are hurting for me saying that, but there there is a way to innovate compliance if we can automate a good chunk and actually focus on the the higher risks or the things that matter more, why not? Well, the things that matter, I mean, this is probably an overstatement, but the things that matter at all for the business, right? Like there's a certain amount of like table stakes that we're talking about here where your terms and conditions on X or Y or Z, you know, from my experience on a number of early stage FinTech uh, founders and companies that I've worked with, like, depending on the product, you generally go to a product that seems like the product you're building, steal their terms and conditions, borrow, maybe edit them, <laughs> right? It makes some very basic edits, run it by a lawyer really quickly, maybe. And then you put that on the site and like, you hope you don't get sued until you raise your seat or your series A, <laughs> right? Like that's kind of the, the, that's the table stakes that we're talking about, but all the nuance and like important pieces are in that other 20%, right? It really is an 80, 20 rule of this is table stakes to keep you out of an orange jumpsuit. This is actually the business strategy over here in the 20% that you should pay attention to. And isn't just a box to check. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I mean, you're right. I think that, I think I know a lot of places that'll just take, you know, existing. Yeah. We're not saying any names, and, but they exist. Right. <laughs> agreements. Yeah. That's all, yeah. That all can be found online. And so, yeah, I mean, it's super easy to just take it, copy and paste and then edit it. Um, and it's also, it's, it's also easy to think that that's easy. Right. So there could be terms yeah. and conditions in there that, that should not just be copied and pasted. Um, and so, so yeah, there, there's that kind of stuff, which is pretty easy that you know has to be done. And then there, you're right, then there's business strategy and it's understanding a little bit of that is more understanding what who the customers are, what the business is, what benefit and services you're trying to provide and then custom tailoring how you're going to manage that risk and, and be able to still protect your customers and still obviously be a business and bring in revenue. It's a fine, fine balance. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's super important and you're right. There's some things that are just kind of check the box that 
we could make a lot easier for people instead of having to go out there and Google it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, your, your point about Celtic, right. And the, it sounds like you say 10 to 12 partners and the fact that all of them are program managers themselves, like the, the Celtic model, it sounds like is very thought through. It's very risk-based. It's very diverse, right? You don't just have one huge company that is 90% of that portfolio. It's, it's very diverse and understanding the way that the bank thinks about that, you know, that I'm sure there's conversations with audit or not auditors. Now I'm just saying audit in my head, regulators and folks with governmental oriented titles that have led them to this idea of these 10 companies and, or 10 to 12 and early stage founders, I think specifically understanding like why banks think about that the way they do is really helpful. And one of the things, I mean, kind of going back to bond, I'll do my shameless plug. Now the ability to step into a financial product, be able to, and outsource is not really the proper word, but outsource a little bit of that program management to your partner at that early stage, which, you know, maybe you don't get all the unit economic benefit, but you're just trying to find product market fit, right? right. Like at seed at series A, like all of these kind of earlier stages is just like, I'm putting a thing out in the world. Do people even want it? Right. And right. if they don't like, at least I didn't spend all of the, I didn't spend two years and $10 million, that's too much, but $2 million, whatever it is to stand up one of these programs where it's robust and compliance controls and all this, like you just want to test something. Right. And then after like if, and when, right. The if is very strong in finding product market fit, you do find it. You actually have an ability to scale from there and almost go to like some sort of like program management university where you learn and are able to meet new people and bring on the team members necessary to go from this, like go from crawling to walking. Right. Whereas if you right. think of crawling as being pro or out having someone else do the PM program management to walking and then running where you're your own program manager, you're like, you, you know, you put on the big, the big human pants and you run from there. Like that's a unique thing, right? There's, there's, companies out there at an early stage that are saying, yeah, we'll do that for you. And then there's companies out there at a later stage saying, we'll do that for you. But in my experience, those aren't the same company. And then like that, that core conversion is a pretty painful thing. In my experience, when you were at Celtic, did you have, did you run into that much? Did you run into folks that were kind of getting to that level of, oh man, I'm actually ready for a Celtic. How do I do this? Um, I, I would say at Celtic, it was more around, there, there were minimums that they had to meet, right? Yep. So there's a minimum level of responsibility and, and program management requirements that they would have to meet. I would say the, the thing that we did at Celtic was we did try to be more flexible about it. Like you can't impose every single requirement um, that you would for, for a more mature fintech that has a five to 10 person compliance department versus one that has just one person, right? And so the ability to, to be flexible and understand what, it, what they are and aren't capable of doing and understand what can give and take in, in certain requirements from a compliance program standpoint, I think that that was a big um, big deal that, that Celtic was able to implement across their various types of fintech partners. I would say that, you know, what you described, Zach, I mean, that's kind of what, what Bond is offering, right? Early stage startup, yep. use Bond, will program manage, 
We'll even advise you and help you get to a point where you can scale. We'll even provide you with the program management tools and functionality so that you could do it with a minimal amount of resources needed. When you get to a certain point of scale, though, um, I wouldn't personally recommend outsourcing it anymore. I mean, I would I would recommend that that a fintech or a brand were to, to assume that responsibility. I mean, at, at the end of the day, the reason, the best reason for program managing your own program as a, as a fintech is you're, you're very close to what your business is doing. So I could be your advisory CCO, but I don't, I may not know the details of your customer base and how, how they, how they spend, what matters to them, what, what, you know, where there could be, you know, benefits to them. I wouldn't know that sitting outside, right? I'm just going to advise you on how you manage compliance. But when you're actually embedded in the business and you understand your customer, again, the heart of why I'm in compliance, when you understand your customer, what their needs are, what benefits them, what, what keeps them up at night, what are the things that they need, how should you be protecting them? Those are all things that you're going to know when you're in the business and there's no substitute for that. There's no substitute for someone truly knowing their customers and understanding that and being able to service them. So when you get to a certain scale, I, I really do think that you should manage your own program for your own benefit and for your customer's benefit. And for the, the, the income statements benefit, right? I mean, the, the, unit economics that one benefits from. I mean, there's the compliance piece, there's marketing, there's all of these different pieces of program management. But at the end of the day, like it wouldn't make a lot of sense. You know, I keep saying Chimey. So let's use them again as an example. But if Chime was at the scale that they're at today or Robinhood or whoever your, you know, as credibly established fintech company is that is doing some kind of card issuance program, if they weren't the program manager, like that would just be, I mean, Maybe there would be some sense of profitability to it, but it seems like it would be more of a cost center and like kind of why are you actually doing this at that scale if you're not benefiting from the predominant interchange? See what I did there? That's why we named this podcast Interchange. (laughs) Um, But you wouldn't benefit from the interchange. You wouldn't in the same way that you would if you were the program manager. And just in general, like the, the whole spreadsheet almost flips on its head when you go from outsourcing that program management to insourcing it or running it yourself, right? That's exactly it, Zach. I mean, there, there's the aspect of, you know, are the economics, unit economics there? And, and the other aspect is also just, you know, it's the right way to run your business because you know, you know what's going on in, in and out in your business. One of the kind of last things that I wanted to touch on, we talked earlier about your just general mental framework of getting into compliance as individuals, not necessarily needing to be a lawyer and pulling, like I'm kind of reading between the lines, but knowing you, I'm guessing this is true. Like pulling more of a diverse group of humans into compliance and into this world that, you know, doesn't pay bad. And you can generally get into some good, interesting companies, right? Like the, it's a, uh, it's not the deepest pool of humans in the world, I think. And finding someone like yourself that understands the business piece of it, understands and has deep experience in the compliance side is, is unique. So really, I guess the question here is, 
what types of folks do you like to have reach out to you and kind of try and get involved in this world? Um, and maybe one of the things that's worth talking about in that lens is your work with uh, Chief and kind of trying to get more women specifically involved in technology. And I'm guessing there's some overlap in, in those couple things. Uh, yeah, that's a good question, Zach. I mean, what I what I look for as far as as compliance folks and, and when I'm recruiting isn't always uh, a ton of experience in compliance. There's an aspect of it that's just ability, right? Is there is there ability to grow? Is there an appetite to learn? Um, you know, I mean, I shared my prior experience, right? I've had yep. folks that take a chance on me because of my potential. And so I, I feel the same way when I hire. Um, and I, I know many compliance folks I've worked with that didn't maybe have compliance experience when I hired them. And, and now they're, they're compliance managers. Um, and so that's just kind of the way it is. I mean, this isn't rocket science. It's really, it, it's pretty easy to teach someone compliance. And then there's the aspect of just time and seat and experience and being exposed to many different scenarios where you eventually are able to advise on, on most things. Right. Um, and so that, that is kind of what, what I expect out of compliance. I mean, like I said, I, I'm not necessarily a by the book rules and regs person. I'm thinking more about how I can help customers help the, <clears throat> the underserved and, and underbanked, you know, folks, and, and get them the, the financial products and the help that they need. And so people that, that want to be in compliance, I mean, I would hope that that's more of what it is and less about the laws. And, you know, I suppose if you like reading laws and regs, knock yourself out. I'm not necessarily. Well, yeah. Of- <laughs> Maybe go to law school if you like reading <laughs> laws and regs. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not necessarily one of those people, but if you do, and then that makes sense, right? Like there are compliance people that love to dig into it. Um, but I would like to think that the, the folks that want to do it, want to do it for the spirit of why we even have a compliance function. Um, and so then, you know, going back to your question about chief, I mean, I, I am so very honored to be a part of that community. And so, you know, I think that a lot of the banking world does have a lot of female leaders in it. And so that's kind of where I started and that's where I had mentors throughout my career. Um, I, I see and I've read articles that, that in the FinTech world, it's probably less, um, it's probably more dominated with, with males and, and not as many females, especially leaders. And so, you know, I'm excited to be a part of Chief where we, I mean, the, basically the mission is to um, support and keep women in leadership positions. And it's not, it's not just tech, right? It's in every, every industry, all companies to help raise them up, yeah. support them, get them there and then keep them there. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, that's something again, very near and dear to my heart. I mean, I had enough people take the chance, take me under their wing, support me, uh, stand up for me in my career, that that's something that I want to do and be able to pay back because there's, it's priceless, right? I mean, I, I couldn't have done it without some of the people that, that supported me and stood me up. So I appreciate that about, about those mentors. And I want to be that for someone too. 
you're an important person in this world. The more people that we can have that have that mental model, I think the better. And also like you're to your point of, you know, you've read some studies. I don't know how many studies or, you know, articles you need to read to figure out that it's mostly dudes in this here industry. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> you kind of just you look around and you're like, ah, there's a lot of men around here. All right. Uh, so I, I love it. I will link to Chief in the show notes and, you know, make sure that people can find information about that from there. Um, so kind of the last question that I wanted to ask you is specifically, you know, with what we're trying to run after here with interchange, it's about how we can benefit the audience, right? This isn't, I mean, it's, we'll talk about bond and here and there, and like, it's what we do with our lives and it's what we're both about to get back to and hop on different <laughs> zoom calls, but it is about helping the folks listening. Right. And this is kind of a backwards question based on that thesis, but the question of what can the audience do to help you will make a lot more sense when we're interviewing external folks. But in this case, I think it actually makes sense because you're hiring inside of the compliance organization, bonds hiring more generally. So maybe we just take it in terms of, you know, we've had this conversation about how you don't need to be a lawyer. You don't need to necessarily be this I don't know, a six foot four white man in a suit to work in compliance with Arlene. Um, so what, how can folks kind of learn more about that? What can folks do to, to get involved and maybe find their way even into a new piece of the financial world in compliance? Well, Zach, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, obviously bond is, is hiring. We have a bunch of positions out there that are posted on our website and, you know, anyone who is interested in compliance um, I think should should take a look at our roles there, but at the same time, you know, I'm also happy to 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 say out loud because I don't believe that there'll be like 500 people reaching out to me <laughs> um, that you know if anyone is interested in you know the career of compliance and and better understanding what that looks like, I mean, feel free to reach out to me, connect to me on LinkedIn. I mean. I, like I said, I'm happy to talk about compliance all the time. I, I don't talk about it in the traditional sense. I talk about it more in what I believe is the spirit and, and how, how we could help, you know, our community. So I love it. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, Arlene. This has been a blast. I'll link to all of that in the show notes so that folks can find it as they get to the end of this. And they're just dying, just chomping at the bit to get into compliance. So I'm sure they're clicking in right now and trying to find you on LinkedIn. So I will <laughs> add all of that there. Thank you so much. This has been a blast. I love getting to talk to you every day, but this gives me like a, this gives me a specific, you know, forum to ask you questions that I wouldn't normally get to ask you. And I've learned a lot. So I appreciate you taking the time and sharing. I really appreciate it, Zach. This was fun. It was. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Interchange with Arlene Zernak. As I said at the beginning, Interchange was founded inside of Bond to benefit the founders, bankers, and humans working inside the next generation of financial services. We hope that you're learning, enjoying, and maybe even laughing along. We really do love this world and we're passionate about every piece of it. And that's why we want to help. Let us know what you'd like to learn more about, who you'd like to hear from, and what's getting you out of bed in this wild world of fintech in which we live. If you'd like to learn more about Bond, please reach out. You can get a hold of me at Zach at Bond.tech. You can get in touch with Arlene, as she said at the end, if anything she said piqued your interest. Let's start a conversation. 
Check out the show notes and the Bond blog for a deeper dive if you're still listening and just can't get enough. All of this can be found at bond.tech. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and a rating in your favorite podcast app. It would be appreciated. Until our next interchange, have a great week.